I'm Tony Tipton Martin. I'm editor in chief of Cook's Country magazine and television show by America's Test Kitchen. I'm award winning author of The Jemima Code and Jubilee. And my new book is Juke Joints, Jazz Clubs, and Juice Cocktails from 200 Years of African American Cookbooks. Something that people may not know is that I actually had cocktails at William Faulkner's grave. When I was president of Southern Foodways Alliance, the students on campus at Ole Miss invited me to join them on an annual ritual, which is a trek to William Faulkner's grave. They go out at midnight, they take bottles of whiskey, and they smoke cigarettes, and then crush the cigarettes into the grave and pour on the whiskey as a offering and a remembrance to celebrate Mr. Faulkner, but also to make sure that he's included and stays relevant in everybody's mind. It was such a blast. I'm Jesse Sparks, and this is The One Recipe, a podcast that turns to chefs and home cooks with a big question in mind. What is their one? The recipe they return to time and time again. This week, we're checking in with Tony Tipton Martin. Martin is the editor-in-chief of Cook's Country Magazine, an award-winning author of multiple books, and a historian. Through her work, Martin weaves together the untold histories of many African-American cooks to counteract stereotypes and paint a new picture of Black cooks in American history. But don't break out those textbooks before hearing the story from Tony herself. Here she is. Hey, Tony, welcome to the show. Hey, Jesse, it's so fun to be with you. Uh, it's so great to have you. So for people who don't know or, or who may have missed your other cookbooks, you have built a career out of kind of restoring the reputations of African-American cooks who have long been either overlooked or pushed to the back of the line. It's been incredible to see all the books that you've worked on. When did this kind of passion rise up in you? Well, you know, it turns out that I had this passion all along. I just didn't know how to deliver it, you know, and it was rooted in my experiences in the kitchen with my grandmother. Um, and I just did not see her reflected any place uh, as long as I was in the food industry. I just, you know, as a young reporter for the LA Times, she wasn't in any of the cookbooks there. And then, you know, as I just moved along in my career, it wasn't until I got to the the Southern Food Waste Alliance, and um, saw other people with the same passion that weren't in my community, right? Mm. It's one thing to be within your people and know you guys just have this love, love and uh, respect for your community. But for other people to be expressing that was really um, eye-opening and mind-blowing to me. And that's really how I started collecting the cookbooks in earnest, was looking for documentary evidence of my ancestors in the pages of history. And you have certainly found them. But before we dive into that, can you tell us a little bit more about the Southern Foodways Alliance and what purpose it serves in the community? Yeah, so a little over 20 years ago, John Edgerton invited 50 of us to uh, gather in Birmingham to consider revisiting the history of food in the South um, as a mechanism for bringing people together. That might seem like ordinary in this day where everybody's having festivals, like everybody's having food and wine gatherings, and it seems pretty normal 
today. Mm -hmm. But back then, this idea that scholarship and academia would blend with the food world was pretty much unheard of. And so we started meeting annually in Oxford, Mississippi at Ole Miss, and we just explored topics that were very startling and mind-blowing to to people. And there was this really interesting mix of people who attended. Um, But what was really cool about it was that we were confined together on the campus for three, two and a half days. And what that means is you've been listening to all these provocative, engaging conversations all day, and then like you have nowhere to go. There's no running back to the internet or TV. You're there and you're immersed in your feelings and your thoughts and you exchange those ideas with other people. It was, it was just beautiful, you know, what we were able to achieve there in those early days. And you've also just done so much work going through all these sources, finding all of these incredible recipes, all these incredible figures, and even photographs of some of the first African-American cooks that we have, like, physical evidence of, tangible photographs of Black cooks in professional kitchens outside of slavery. What was kind of the feeling like when you found those photos, when you found that work? So I'm from Los Angeles, and a lot of people did not want to engage with that Southern enslaved experience, right? When they left the South, they left the South behind. And Mm so um, cookbooks were a way for me to find evidence that I could not experience anywhere in history. And so cookbooks are a way for a community to leave an identity, to leave a mark in their own words, not translated through some historian or some observer, the plantation mistress and her diary. Like I was reading all of those sources, trying to find identity for my ancestors. Um, I read music lyrics. I looked at photographs. I I rooted around in every possible scholarly way I could, crossing disciplines from African-American studies to women's studies to like all kinds of stuff. And once I hit on the cookbooks, they gave voice to everything else that I had been reading. So any of these sources in isolation, they're not as effective as telling a story because someone's always going to be able to find fault with it. But once you put them all together, it's like assembling a jigsaw puzzle and that one piece is just missing. Like who, what would my ancestors say if they were here? Would this really be the representation for why the cook couldn't tell you whether to add three eggs or four, right? The the historians Mm -hmm. recorded that she was dumb and poor, stupid Lizzie. She, She just didn't know how many eggs. No, that's not true. Lizzie knew how many eggs. It's just that she didn't go to the refrigerator and open the carton that says large, (laughs) double, you know, large, um, grade A, double A on them. She had to decide what the chickens did that day to determine her recipe. And so recipes became a mechanism for identity, for carrying um, values. I, I read all kinds of other important aspects of life into the recipes beyond just the ingredients list and the methodology. So turning the tables on you a little bit, you've told us about all that you can pull out of a recipe for someone else, but what is your one recipe and what does it say about you? Well, so because I happen to be focused right now on my upcoming book, which is called Juke Joints, Jazz Clubs, and Juice, It's a cocktail book. And it's not just cocktails. It looks over the 200-year history of these books and recipes related to Black drinking. So my one recipe 
is the blackberry ginger bourbon smash. Ooh, I'm so fascinated by your choice of bourbon, too. Is there a story behind that, or do you just like a stiff drink? Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> so uh, it seems like most of my Southern work and a lot of this uh, area ties back to those years at Southern Foodways. And I, before I was at uh, participating every year at SFA, I was really a champagne girl. I wanted a you know slender flute with a strawberry floating on top, and that was my idea of a good cocktail. But of course, being in the South, everyone has to learn more about bourbon. And so my friends there taught me about drinking neat. They taught me about different brands and distilleries. Um, I learned how to taste for oak and caramel and vanilla and even citrus in some, in some distillers, um, product. And so this idea of the blackberry ginger bourbon smash, not only is it tied to bourbon, but it's got a really rich history in African-American mixology. Okay, so can you first walk me through that history? And then can you walk me through making the cocktail? Yeah, so um, we have only in the most recent years been hearing about Black mixologists. We think about mm-hmm. people uh, of color always focused on the hard slave labor, right? We don't think about the creative nature of people of color. And um, all the way back to the mint julep, there have been African-Americans mixing and smashing fresh fruit and spirits and coming up with a really dreamy cocktail. And the first mention of that goes all the way back to a man named Nat Fuller in Charleston, who was making something called the Brandy Smash, which was served on boats as they sailed around in the Charleston Harbor. There was a man named, a freedman named um, John Dabney, and the city of Richmond honored him for his julep, which he crowned with all kinds of assorted fruits on top of the julep. So we think of a julep as, um, you know, this mound of beautiful crushed ice with um, a flourish of mint on top. And we always associate it with the Derby, right? Kentucky Derby. But what my research showed me was that this drink was prominent in our early history or into the early 20th century. And it often included fresh fruit. So now that we have a little bit of the background, what made you fall in love with this cocktail? Was it someone that introduced it to you at the right time? Was it more just tasting and tweaking to your own specifications too? Sure. So um, there are two parts to that question. One is, you know, a lot of this work is not just uh, my interest and desire to restore the reputations of lost role models, but I'm also interested in telling the stories of women because we have been primarily marginalized even more than, say, the men. And I discovered a book by a woman named Atheline Payton from 1906, and she had a pineapple julep. So my first inspiration here when I wanted to reach beyond the classic mint julep was to come up with something that was really refreshing and cool and delightful. And she offered this amazing pineapple julep. I happened to have been traveling and I um, was on, saw on a restaurant menu the idea of using blackberry. So I thought that might be a really good combination because it's got those same kind of notes where the fruit is a little bit, it can be tart, but sweet at the same time. And that's part of what recipe adaptation is, right? You find an inspiration and then you make it your own. Um, and so my recipe that appears in the book is a combination of all of these people. And I take a little bit from each one of them. 
um, <laughs> until, uh, until I arrive at the version that I really love the most. And hey, that's the best way to do it. That way, everyone gets a piece of the pie and you get a great drink at the end of it. So can you walk me through the steps? I will. So you take um, fresh, beautiful blackberries from the farm market or if they're great in season. I guess you could also use frozen. Um, but you put those in your cocktail mixer and you muddle them with a syrup, a sweet. It can be simple syrup. It can be sugar. I like to use demerara sometimes. Um, because of those rich um, molasses notes that can come out of that sugar. And it's more natural than a brown sugar, which is just sprayed with molasses. So I tend to do that, but it can be a little crispy (laughs) in the drink. (laughs) Um, So sometimes I'll even make, uh, in this case, I even make a ginger simple syrup, right? And so now we have these muddled berries and then we also have a ginger simple syrup, which really simple syrup is just a bartender shortcut so that you don't have to overwork your drink by trying to dilute the sugar. You just melt it in warm water, which some people boil it depending upon how thick you want the syrup to be. So if you want mm-hmm. to concentrate it, you would be you know, trying to get it down to about half. It's equal portions of sugar and water, and then you would reduce it by half. Or you can just heat it. Some bartenders actually talk to me about just diluting it in hot water. And then when you're kind of flavoring that simple syrup, you're basically just adding the ginger in while that water is kind of dissolving the sugar as well. That way you also can pull out that flavor from the ginger too. You can, and you can even, like you can mash that so that you can really extract all of those peppery, um, spicy notes that are in the ginger. And I use that spicy syrup throughout the recipe book. Carla Hall actually had a version where she added jalapenos to that ginger simple syrup. So as you oh, can hear, my, my recipes try to give credit back to all the recipes that inspired me. And I stay in the lane of cookbooks looking for my inspiration. So you mix this version of Carla's ginger syrup. You take the blackberries and the fruit from Antheline Payton. You mix those two with the whiskey that refers back um, to those early mint julep makers. And you shake all of that and stir it with ice. And you've got this amazing, refreshing, cool, pink-hued kind of, it's not quite purple. It's a light, light lavender. Um, but it's just, just delightful. Oh, that's beautiful. And I'm sure that you can save that simple syrup for the next time you want to make a drink. You know, you just make a big batch of it and then you're good to go. You can. And if you are like a real ginger aficionado, once you get that base, that syrup, fruit syrup base, then you dilute that with um, sparkling water. In the old days, they used a lot of ginger ale. And so rather than doing ginger ale, which is a little bit more... um, cloying and sweet to me mm-hmm. um i leaned more into ginger beer and of course ginger beer has an that's a whole nother we could do a whole nother show on ginger beer how long do you have we can talk for hours i'm <laughs> we ready we could to go. talk about the african <laughs> history of ginger beer but um so i use ginger beer to really give it a little effervescence a little punch and then if you really want to be fancy you can just drizzle it with a little empress indigo gin which definitely kicks off that purple color. And so I am not trying to be anybody's bartender mixologist. I make (laughs) no claims on that. But what I am doing is making sure that our love of cocktail making is recorded in history and really just showing people all the different ways that they can make the drinks their own. Well, you are always a guest at my bar. (laughs) 
Tony, thank you so much for joining me. And I cannot wait to make this cocktail. Thanks. I'm so happy to have been here with you. Tony Tipton Martin is the editor-in-chief of Cook's Country Magazine and the author of Juke Joints, Jazz Clubs, and Juice. You can find that recipe for her Blackberry Ginger Bourbon Smash on Instagram at the.one.recipe and at theonerecipe.org. And hey, if you liked what you heard, you can like and subscribe. It makes a world of difference. This week's episode was made for you by producer Erica Romero, associate producer Ren Farrell, technical director Alex Simpson, and digital producer James Napoli. Sally Swift is our managing producer. APM Studios executives in charge are Chandra Kavati, Alex Shaffert, and Joanne Griffith. Beth Perlman is our executive producer. The One Recipe was created by Sally Swift and Erica Romero. I'm Jesse Sparks. This is APM Studios. Go make some magic. <laughs>